Welcome, everyone, to the MOH Podcast. I'm Jim Patton, your host. Uh, be sure to tell your friends the podcast is available at moh.org. It's available on the Bean, uh, the Podbean um, app, which is good for the iOS or the Android uh, operating systems, either one. You can find it at iTunes, and you can also just go directly to podbean.com. We're working on podcast number 30 this week. The, uh, the title of this uh, episode is called The Day of the Locust Part 1. It uh, follows up uh, on the last four podcasts that we've done, numbers 26 through 29. And uh, Winky just continues in the same, uh, uh, at the same location, uh, working with the same audience. Uh, now, this is uh, what happens when we work with these old tapes. Uh, sometimes there are problems. On this one, we don't get the very beginning uh, so we don't know exactly, you know, uh, who was running the tape machine or whatever. Maybe there was an introduction and they didn't know um, to start it quite on time or whatever. And then uh, on the other end, the the very end is cut off, and so we don't know exactly how he how he ended this one. But uh, I thought the information was good enough and it was powerful enough that we should use this message anyway. Um, I haven't looked at the second part yet. Hopefully, it'll be better. But this is a fairly fairly good quality recording, and it's some really powerful, powerful stuff as usual. Uh, it's something that we can all learn from. Uh, again, something that could apply to today, and uh, it's um, it's a little unusual for me because I, I grew up or I was grew up spiritually speaking during that time, and we talked about things like people getting involved in cults and things like that. That's not something that happens much today. Uh, because there isn't uh, that much of a uh, spiritual awakening taking place in the country, but there was at that time. And so we're going to let Winky uh, take you in just right from where the tape starts to where it ends, and then uh, I'll see you after it's over. Here we go. Day of the Locust, Part 1. And it wasn't only loud, it was good. He, uh, He was so powerful in his preaching that Robert Garrick, Sir Robert Garrick, who was a noted Shakespearean actor of his day, said after listening to George Whitfield preach, I would give 10,000 gold sovereigns to be able to say the word, oh, like George Whitfield. Because he would say, oh, that you might give your life to Christ, and people would weep. That's the way he said, oh. So Garrick said, boy, I'd give 10,000 gold sovereigns if I could say, oh, like George Whitfield. He wasn't saved. So made it difficult. I want to uh, take you boldly where no man has gone before this morning. We want to look at what we'll call the Day of the Locusts. Would you turn please in your Bibles to the book of Joel? And uh, we're going to look at the contribution to dissolution of our society that Eastern thought has brought. Now there are many beautiful things about Eastern people, their gentleness, their uh, willingness to put up with a great deal of pain and suffering, that uh, especially true in India. And the East has much to teach. Uh, Eastern Christians have much to teach Western Christians concerning humility and the willingness to sacrifice and uh, the willingness to uh, stand against materialism and things like this. But what we are looking today is not something cultural. We're looking at something that has, uh, that are concepts, that are, pr- that are ideas, uh, that have eaten out the heart of all that was beautiful 
in the east and replace it with vast amounts of destruction. And this has been fast imported to the west, will have exactly the same results. There is a reason for this in the demonic world. And uh, I want to give you, uh, before we study Joel in detail this morning, I'd like to give you the four steps downwards that any nation takes to destruction. Uh, I'll give you, first of all, a little background on where we're going to in terms of this. We looked at four counterfeits last night of these four fundamental needs. And we need to say right off the top that the only way you can help people who are involved in these deceptive practices which we'll look at this morning is to make sure that you have such a revelation of Jesus yourself that you are able to meet these four needs in people's life. Because many people go from cult to cult, from weird idea to weird idea, trying somehow to find some way to have those needs met. And it's no good you saying, well, look, I got a better theology than yours, or Christianity is a lot better than whatever you're into, unless you can demonstrate that practically Jesus Christ can meet those needs in their life. And, of course, it's not the reason why they should get saved, but it just happens to be true. There should be such a love in your life that it transcends anything they've ever met in a cult. There should be such wisdom in your life that what is said, which ought to be the Word of God, personified in your own life, would, would bypass the heaviest teachings of the gurus they've sat under. There should be power in your life which will match and transcend anything the occult world can come up with. And there ought to be a worship that is more pure and more positive and more genuine than any of the hundreds of hours that some Eastern people spend in devoting themselves to deities. Now, that's what it will take. And so, when we look at all these other things, these are not given primarily in order that you will have an effective witness in these areas. They're given for you to understand how deep deception can become and to give you the contrasting areas in which you need to do study in order to be sure in your own heart and mind what Christ says on these matters. Uh, we'll say, just before we look at the dissolution of a nation, the first counterculture, the one we looked at, was basically an irreligious one. It was not primarily a religious one, and it was, uh, it was a very uh, hedonistic one. It was based on feeling, music, and sex, and drugs, it was a pleasure-centered and what the East would call materialistic. Not materialistic in the sense of cars and, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> big houses and stuff, because the hip kids made a big thing of not having houses and cars and fancy stuff. Uh, but as George MacDonald said, if it be things that slay you, what matter things that you have or things that you have not? A very heavy thing. If your big problem is things, whether it's concern because people don't have things or concern because people do have things, then things are your problem and you're a materialist. There was an old song many years ago, it was called The Great Judgment Morning. I dreamt that the Great Judgment Morning came and it was interesting there. It said the rich man was there, but his riches had melted and vanished away. The poor man was there with his burdens, his debts were too heavy to pay. And rich and poor, economics are not your basis of going into the kingdom. Rich men go to hell and poor men go to hell. You do not go to hell by being rich. 
You do not go to hell by being poor. You go to hell because your whole life has been wrapped up around things. And that's just one of the reasons. Instead of the living God, you place in its place the creation instead of the creator. You fall under the judgment of Romans 1. When they re knew God, they refused to give him glorious God. They became vain in their reasonings and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And God gave them over to, to uh, depravity and all kinds of other things. So here's your first step. This was the first counterculture. The East purpose is to come in and bring this from an irreligious, materialistic to a religious, anti-materialistic. Now, we said the devil is a copycat. Now, let's ask one other question. If you were the devil and you wanted to rule the world, what kind of world must you rule? A religious world or an irreligious world? Would it be religious or irreligious? Religious. Why? Because you want to play God. And people who don't believe in any kind of God are certainly not going to worship you. So you have to move people from being irreligious to religious. Now you get them irreligious by getting them rebellious. You get them broken away from all of their old traditions like morality and virtue and all of this stuff. You bust it in, the, in, the, in, in a culture, and you see this especially in music. The early days, a great deal of energy in music was derived from smashing accepted traditions. But after you've smashed everything, what do you got left? After you cut their heads off babies and you know, had nightmares and lived out in your fantasies, what, what do you got left? If you've done everything ugly, then you get a nostalgia thing, and that really sums up Greece in Saturday Night Fever. You've got a flashback to the old days where it was wrong to uh, take somebody's virginity. It was wrong to be a, a sort of a, a rebel against society. And so the, there's sort of a, what could I call it, a... There's a, um, a pleasure that comes to sinning when you know there is such a thing as sin. But after you've destroyed all rights and wrongs, there's nothing left to be wrong about. best parallel I could give us in the Bay Area, when uh, they, the mayor outlawed uh, bottomless and topless restaurants. And, uh, you know, the Bay Area, the business was really bad before he did it. Because, you know... It was just everybody said, well, forget this, man. This is getting so commonplace, it's not even fun anymore. The man came in and said, this is very bad, and we're in sticking pieces of sticker over all posters and stuff, and business picked up incredibly. Point is, when there's something wrong to violate, there's a thrill that comes with it. When you've destroyed all thrill, all rights and wrongs, there's nothing left. You get empty. There's no energy there. So I think flashbacks to the 50s, a kind of flashbacks to a nostalgic day when there were rights and wrongs to violate. And then, uh, you've got to get them out of this now. Now they're irreligious, they don't care for any gods, but you can't have them like that because you want worship. So you've got to bring them to religious and then get away from simple physical things and get them into the spiritual things. And you've got to be very careful if you're the devil in doing this, because there may be mistakes along the way. There was a small mistake 
took place in the mid-60s called the Jesus Movement. That was called Small Mistake. And trying to shift kids from irreligious to religious, a bunch of them unfortunately got hold of Bibles and stuff, and then there was this awful mistake. It went through hell. And, what did you do? What you do? And 10,000 kids got saved. That's called awful mistake. So you have to bring in something that gives religiousness without being righteous, that will make people religious without perish the thought, bringing them back into the scriptures. And because the Bible is here, and we're not in Luther's time, where there were no Bibles anywhere in it, nobody knew, there's so many Bibles, you've got to bring in something that uses the Bible, but takes them significantly away from it. And that is where the day of the locust comes in. The final step, uh, we will look at later. The third step on this. By the way, I don't want you to think of this like steps of a building, like this. We're going up towards the final consciousness, the coming counterculture. Don't think of it as isolated incidents. Think of it instead as essences or colors dropped into water. Uh, here is a clear system. In the first one, you drop this, and the color spreads. Some places it's much stronger than others. Some places in the nation doesn't even affect. There are some places in this country where the first counterculture has not really come yet. See, that, that may sound strange to you, but I meet kids who are just starting to experiment on the levels of drugs and sex. It just started. It's a new thing for them. You know, in the backwoods there, there they are, in the Appalachians. What is this? And then the next one comes in, and that colors too. Sometimes the colors changes immediately. And then finally you put the third color in, and then gradually the molecules bounce around. The whole culture becomes saturated. You realize that this first counterculture is now our present culture. It has shifted right into it, and that which we used to look on as a counterculture is now existing culture. So when we call this new consciousness the coming counterculture, you should understand it will be one day general culture. The whole world will believe this. All right, that's the step. Now let me give you the steps of a nation falling into ruin. That's just, we're looking at the overall picture of where we're going in this series. Now I want to give you four steps to the destruction of a nation. Uh, Israel went down the tubes in four steps. The first one is this. They forgot God. And I'd like you to turn, please, to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll just do this very, very briefly. But you may like to look at a few scriptures here. Deuteronomy 6, 12. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through to 20. And uh, you might like to scribble some of these down. Psalm 19, 17, 9, 17, Psalm 50, verses 14 to 22 and 23. Uh, Jeremiah, there's a lot of scriptures on this. Jeremiah 2, 31 to 32. What I want you to look at is these two in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And I want you, as we read this, not to think of Israel, but to think of the United States of America. You know, many of the settlers, when they first came here, the pilgrims, considered this nation as a new Israel. They really thought of it like that. They read scriptures, 
that applied to Israel in the Old Testament, and they directly applied it to their situation. They thought of themselves as God's people being brought to a land by the Lord under direct divine guidance. And most of you know that, you know that Christopher Columbus was a missionary. He did not discover the United States by accident in a trade route, but that God showed him in a vision that this nation was here and told him how to get here by divine guidance. And all this garbage you read in history books about he accidentally discovered as a trade route on the way to India, a bunch of foolishness. His own journal says, the Lord showed it to me and did not come into my own mind. I didn't make use of maps or mathematics. God showed me how to get here. And he came as a missionary. So the early people who arrived, the pilgrims and the Puritans who arrived here, felt in their heart of hearts, this is a new Israel. God has given us a nation in which we will do a great work for God. That's how they arrived. So I want you to read this, Deuteronomy 6, and these passages in terms not of Israel thousands of years ago, but of the United States, not so many hundreds of years ago. In verse uh, 12, well, we could, uh, we could back up, but verse 12 says, Then beware lest you forget the Lord, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. A warning. When you see all of these beautiful things, then beware lest you forget the Lord. And then... Eight, and we could back up a little bit in eight. Look, let's look at verse seven. For the Lord thy God brings you to a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness, you shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. And when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware, lest you forget, that you forget not the Lord your God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein, I was riding down last night on the freeway and looking at the lights all across the valley, scattering all the way out to L.A., and I was thinking, how sad it must be for God. He gives a nation, a place like California, and people build lovely houses, and they put it all over the place. And then he knows this verse, uh, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God which brought you out out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Beware lest you forget. Well, that's the first step when a nation goes down the tubes. It forgets God. It forgets God who gave them the benefits. It is... Remember uh, the thing in Romans... Uh, when they knew God, they did not give him glory as God, neither were thankful. They were not grateful. They took it for granted. They said, this is our right. Uh, our parents had this, and that's our right. And they forgot it was a divine gift. Forgot to be thankful. You cannot be proud and grateful. You cannot be proud and grateful. A proud man is never grateful. And the nation's pride is related to its ungratefulness. It's ingratitude. 
All right, now second. This is just a, an outline. Secondly, they forgot God's laws. That was the second warning given by God to the people. And we'll look back even earlier in Deuteronomy. Demon-possessed eraser. Write this down. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through to 9, and uh, verses 23 through to 28. And you could look this one up, and then I'll just give you a couple more to write down. 2 Kings uh, 17, and verse 38. Uh, let's give you a few more. Psalms. 78, verses 1 through to 8, and 10 through to 11. And uh, Proverbs, just a few out of the many. You can look these up yourself, and uh, you can do Bible studies, if you like, on these phrases. I'm just giving you a few out of the many, many in Scripture. Now look at Deuteronomy. Uh, back a little bit, Deuteronomy 4. Again, the warning of the Lord. Deuteronomy 4. God says in verse 1, Therefore hearken, O Israel, to the statutes, to the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that you may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers gave you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish from it. But you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. And I'll show you in a little while what the, the doctrines of these men who followed Baal Peor. We're going to look at them in the day of the locusts. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God hath commanded me, that you should do so in the land whither you go to possess it, Moses says. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so near to them as the Lord our God in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of thy life. But teach them, thy sons, and thy son's sons. And then, especially the day you stood before the Lord thy God, and uh, God said, I'll make them to hear my words, and came near the mountain, and all of this. So, verse, uh, verse 23, uh, go forwards. We're looking at Deuteronomy 4, and just 5 and 9, and 23 to 28. Just the verses in there. Deuteronomy 4, now 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, 
and you make a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When you shall beget children and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. There you shall serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. That's a warning. Don't forget his laws. Because if you do, your children will be scattered, they'll go to other nations, and there they will serve gods of stone, of wood. And you tell me if that isn't this nation. You want to live in the hippie trail for a while and see tens of thousands of American kids heading up to Tibet and India to bow down and worship statues, just like God said. It's this country. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. You find yourself in the same circumstances, you meet the same conditions, the same promises apply. The same is true for the judgments of God. You meet the same circumstances and meet the same conditions, the same judgments apply because God is not a respecter of persons. All right? That's secondly. Now thirdly. Third step down. They made up new gods. Gods which are not gods. Sometimes demons are worshipped as gods. And some more scriptures. Again in Deuteronomy. Same passage. 4 and verses 15 through to 19 and verses 23 to 28, the ones we've just read to you. And then I'll give you a few others you can look at. Jeremiah 2, verse 11 through to 13 and verses 26 to 28. And then also Jeremiah 23. 24 to 27. Perhaps we'll look at Jeremiah 2. Just give you another passage here. All of these will bear a lot more study if you ever get the time to do it. At least if you get the scriptures down, it'll save you a little bit looking up. Jeremiah 2. And verses 11 through to 13. Incredible set of scriptures. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then, verses 26 to 28. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Incredible scripture. You want to look at 23? Let's just go one more. These all worth looking up. I haven't written them down here in notes just for putting little things on pages. If you read these out, it will really amplify for you what is happening to this country. Uh, 23 and verse 24 to 27. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I feel heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the hearts of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yes, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, therefore behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. And then a whole list of stuff. And that's what we've got. We've got prophets prophesying dreams that took people's hearts away from the living God and turn them unto Baal. All right, now I'll go back to Joel. And uh, we're not going to read this whole passage. But Joel is, reads like a science fiction book. Joel is an astonishing record. The last one, I'll put the last one down for you, and we won't go into detail on it. We'll just say this. They made up new laws. And you might like to write down just one scripture on this, which sums up the whole thing. Making up new laws, uh, Psalm 106, verse 21. Psalm 106, I'll write it up for you. Psalm 106. Verse 21 and verses 28 to 29. And then you can put down uh, Romans 1.30. And there is one scripture that sums up this entire destruction. It's found in uh, Judges 3.7. And this is what it says. The children of Israel forgot the Lord... They did evil, they served Balaam and the groves. The groves are places where occult worship went on, uh, reconstructed 
Um, new laws is where you come up with new explanations of how the universe works. It leaves out God and leaves out moral change. That's what a new law is. It's a repeatable, uh, often occult energized pattern of events to, to create desired results that completely go against what God has said is the true nature of the universe. That's a new law. All right. Now let's go to the day of the locusts, and I'm going to give you four demonic concepts that have been imported wholesale into the heart of the Western world, and its purpose is to eat out the foundations of the Western Judeo-Christian tradition. In the book of Joel, we have a very strange science fiction type prophecy. I don't know if you have ever seen uh, a locust invasion. I haven't except in film, but I met a man in Australia once whose entire business was wiped out by one. And uh, once in where we were in Texas, in the Midwest last year early, there was a grasshopper plague, which grasshoppers just multiplied and you, it was really wild walking through a field because we weren't in the worst hit places. But you could walk through a field and within maybe, uh, you know, 12 square foot around you, there'd be about 30 or 40 grasshoppers. And when you walked, everywhere you walked, it would go, they'd just fly a little bit, and then down again. Now, can you imagine what it'd be like you're standing out there and all the trees are coming out and there's the blossoms out and looks like it's going to be a great year and the crops are going to be good. Everything's starting to come up and look green. You're out there leaning on your shovel saying, the work of my hands has got me this. You look out in the distance and it's a perfectly clear day. It's blue and you see this swarm coming. And the sky is black. Billions of these things. What are you going to do? Run in and get your can of Raid? Not going to help you on this day. And what Joel sees in a vision is so shocking, so destructive to the economy of a nation, which is, say, an economy of nations based on ecology, like in New Zealand, ours is. You can imagine what it's like. He sees this thing coming down in the nation that is so frightening it is to be told like a scary fairy story down for three or four generations. Because as he sees, he sees these locusts coming down on the nation. i give you a picture. You're out there and suddenly they come by the hundreds of thousands per square acre. They just like this. Every place. If they bit, it would be curtains. They don't. They just eat everything. Eat grass, anything living. Come down on a rosewood, leave, just stumps. Gone. About, I forgot what the, the number is, but per square acre, just a few locusts, like I think it's 30 locusts eat more than cows do. Just clean, man, right down to the roots. Gone. Kill everything. And uh, can you imagine what it's like? You open the door, and they're all inside, jumping on the carpets, munching away at the 
things. You open the oven and they're jumping in and out of the bread and uh, you get in your car to drive away shrieking and the, the windscreen wipers are wiping locusts out and you're skidding on locusts and brother, what, what a freaky thing. So dangerous that the wino goes instantly sober here. He looks up oh, and he's suddenly sober. There are marriages in process. Everybody runs right out in the middle of the wedding and doesn't even get finished. Preachers preaching a message. They come down. It's the end of the service right there. Well, that's what he saw. And then in his mind, a transformation took place. And suddenly the locusts became people. He was dealing with the real locust plague that was really going to come. But in his mind, God suddenly shot him forward thousands of years in the future. And he was to see the great and terrible day of judgment of God. And the locusts changed. You know, locusts are absolutely unstoppable. What are you going to do? How can you stop them? Spray flamethrowers in the air. What do you, how do you stop those things? Well, in his mind's eye, he saw the locust army change and it became the army of God. And this divine army came down and absolutely unstoppable. You could build your things that came right over the top of them. There was nothing you could do. It was absolute helplessness. And we'll say this, the devil is a copycat. God has an army, so is the devil. And his army are the locusts. And the locusts are eastern concepts, which are brought in to eat out the heart of the morality of a nation. Now let me give you a little picture of a thing in the spirit. Over the top of a nation is an umbrella of divine protection, provided that nation maintains at least some moral concepts which are true. In other words, a nation may not be Christian, but maintain within its structure and within its concepts and within even its constitution some fundamentally Christian premises. For that reason, God will maintain a blanket of divine protection over that nation. It's simply put like this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And as long as a nation is not openly worshipping the demonic, then God will maintain a certain amount of angelic protection on the country. Judgment that should have fallen just does not seem to fall for some reason. The only thing that holds it back are these the judgment from coming, are these pillars. We will call them what Francis Schaeffer calls moral memories. Moral memories. They are memories of what right and wrong used to be. And though people may not know why they are rights and wrongs, at least they know that there are rights and wrongs. And you get a lot of people, they may be Archie Bunker type people, but they believe in real rights and wrongs. Even if they are part of the wrong, they believe there are rights. And they will fight to the death to defend, uh, you ought to be good, even if they're not good. And we've got a nation filled, still, in many, many places with people like this. But out on here in the West Coast, in New York, that's getting eaten out. There are no rights and wrongs. It's whatever you think is right. It's being eaten out. The locusts have come in, and they eat away at the foundations. They become like termites, and they eat holes right through those foundations. And when that thing goes, God takes the blanket off the nation and it is open to divine judgment. And that's what's happening right now. Their purpose is to destroy moral memory and they do it in a very cunning way. 
They know that you cannot attack Christianity directly and survive. It is the rule of the church that God has made the church to do two things, to build and to battle. And church was designed to do that. Two illustrations Jesus gives, for instance, of counting the cost of Christianity, one of them is this, a man going to build a house. Second one is, well, he's actually not building a house, he's building a tower. A tower is a place from which you launch battles. Not a retirement center, a tower. And the second illustration is a war. So those two illustrations of the cost of Christianity deal with two things, building and battling. In the building, you have the local church, like Osborne neighborhood here, where God has put godly men in, like Pastor Stiles, to build and to shepherd and take care of the flock of God. In the battle, you have ministries like Youth of the Mission and other such ministries that are mobile, that travel. One is local, one represents stability and the shepherding and training and caring. The second one is flexible, it is military, it is apostolic, and it goes out and breaks open new ground for Christ. The church is designed to build and to battle. And if it's not battling the enemy, it'll fight itself. That's why Christians fight all the time. If they do not go out and do what God told them to do, because they were designed to fight, they'll fight each other. If they don't build what God says, they'll build something. That's why people build giant kingdoms that God is not in at all. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. In each case, the house gets built. Just in one case, it's for God, and the other one, it's for somebody else. The church was designed for those two things. It will, therefore, fulfill it. Now, the East knows this. It knows that if you confront the church in a battle, you will lose. If you hit it straight on and you say, listen, you're Christians, and this is the opposite, and we're going to come, and we're going to blow you away, this is the way God designed the universe. And all of the odds are on the side of the church. There's no way you can win. I'm thinking back in the early, uh, one, over 1,700 years ago, there was a guy called Manes. I call him Mayonnaise for short. Well, Manes was a Persian philosopher. He had a little bit of Zoroastrianism and a little Zen and all kinds of trippy things mixed up together. But old Mayonnaise decided that he was going to evangelize the world with his own philosophies. He picked them up from Egypt and from demons and other places. And uh, so he got his disciples to go out and evangelize. He was in prison because he tried to heal the king's son and wasn't very effective. And the king put him in prison. And uh, he sent out his disciples, and they came back after a number of months of traveling, tremendously discouraged. They said, we're making no leeway at all, because everywhere we go, the Christians have been there, and anybody's heard what the Christians have to say, don't even want to listen to us. It's too heavy. We can't fight that. So you know what old Mayonnaise did? He got his disciples to get all the Christian writings they could and bring them back to him in his prison cell, and he wrote his, rewrote his entire presentation, incorporating as much scripture as he could, and sent him out again. And this time, it took off like wildfire. What did we say earlier about the devil? The devil is a copycat. He knows the only way to win is to get as close as possible to the original. Because men were designed and women were designed 
to match God's original. If you depart totally from it, nobody will have their needs met. They won't buy it. Well, Mayonnaise's end is quite horrible. He escaped from prison by bribing a jailer, and the king sent out hitmen after him. And after causing a vast amount of damage around by sharing his horrible philosophy with all kinds of different people, one of the king's hitmen finally caught up with him, brought him back to the prison. He was executed. He was skinned alive first. They took his skin, sewed him up, and blew him up like a balloon and flew him from the king's palace. That was mayonnaise's end, which is a fairly awful end. He began a philosophy which we know as Manichaeanism, or Manichaeism. And uh, just thought I'd throw that in. That's nothing extra. Now, why have I drawn this grid? I've drawn this grid to show you this. That the way the East comes in now, and the way the locusts work, is not by attack, but by absorption. And they say this, Jesus Christ is a way to God. Really is. And not only that, the Bible is one of God's revelations to man. But it is only one small part of a much greater revelation. Not only is Jesus the only way to God, so is Paramahansa Yogananda, and so is Ramdas, and so is Baba Frijan, and so is Guru Maharaji, and so is Sri Ramakrishna, and so is. And so you have all of these different ways to God, of which Christianity is one in a geometric network of truth that is much broader than just the narrow little thing which you think. And all that's so dangerous today, because who wants to be narrow? We always want to be broad-minded and tolerant and so open-minded our brains fall out. And so they say this is all true, but it is inadequate. And that way you can't fight it, you see. If it's true, well, then they're not saying it's wrong. We believe that too. So they say to you, you can be a Christian, fine. Just don't say that uh, this other way is wrong. You don't know. That's the locust philosophy. So let me give you now the first of the concepts of the locust. The first one is this. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's hard for me to find good ways to phrase this, but I'll try my best. Neither Jesus nor the Bible I mean the Christian scriptures are absolute truth. That's probably, it may be much nicer ways of phrasing it, but I'm not really good enough to phrase it properly yet. But that's the idea. And this is the way it goes. Here's the way this would be phrased. Uh, Jesus was a manifestation of God, just like you fill in the blanks, was a manifestation of God, or is a manifestation of God. See? Or, uh, the Bible is a good book, but it is not the oldest record of spiritual truth. In order to find more about God, we must go to these older records and study them, and they will tell us many things that we will not learn from the Christian revelation. 
The third way it comes is somewhat like this. Oh, you're into Jesus. How wonderful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful for you. Well, I'm actually into something else, but I'm not in this world to measure up to your expectations, and you're not in this world to measure up to mine, and if by chance we should meet, it is beautiful. Now, that's the way it goes. Isn't that so mellow and laid-back and West Coast lifestyle? Well, I'll tell you something else. It's also demonic. We have so many cool people today would never think of being called narrow. Let me tell you something. I have, back in my lab in New Zealand, a bottle of potassium cyanide. There is enough cyanide in that bottle. It's just something you use in reagents. It's probably a deadly-looking reagent, but you need it for a lot of complex reactions. I have enough in that bottle to take out most of this area if I dropped it into a local water supply. It is super deadly. As a matter of fact, the actual stuff that kill you, kills you in that is, a, is only a small part of the, the actual st substance KCN. It's only a, about a hundredth to a thousandth part of that is that actually kills you. But it's super deadly. Now, do you think I would be broad-minded if I said to you, you can eat that, it's not going to hurt you? Wouldn't that be nice and broad-minded? So you can eat anything at all on my shelves. Everything is beautiful in its own way. Is it narrow-minded for me to say to you that if you eat that, you'll die? You'll just keel straight over dead? So much so that when they put it out as rat bait, a rat in the middle of eating it dies so that his hand is still frozen in the place where he's going to take a step? So that on instant biting it within... Less than three seconds, you are dead. Would it, would it be to me a kindness to say to you, there are many paths to truth, and perhaps one of them is KCN? Now, God once put a tree in the middle of a garden, and he made a statement. And this is called a statement about reality. Do not eat this fruit, for in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And a certain snake came along and suggested that that wasn't true. And he's making a statement like I'd make. Potassium cyanide kills human beings. Would you go and kick the bottle and say, you nasty, arbitrary bottle? Making nasty laws like that? Killing people? It's called a fact. Not an invention. It's a statement of fact. Just as much as I say, if you jump out of the New York State Building... Empire State Building, without wings, you are going to die. You're going to go and kick the New York Empire State Building and say, you stupid building, how arbitrary. That's a fact. You need to know this. God's laws are statements of fact. They're not inventions. They're not arbitrary constructions. They are statements of reality. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is not narrowness, that is a statement of reality. Nobody else said that. He did, and he said it because he meant it. When people come along, flitting around and saying, Jesus is not the only way to God, they directly contradict the God who made the universe. It's just as much as smiling and saying, cyanide will not kill you. It will. You may not believe it, but do it and you'll find out. Now, 
Uh, another way of saying this is that there is no ultimate truth in any one system. No ultimate truth in any one system of thought. Christianity has some parts of the truth, and Buddhism has others, and Confucianism has others, and Hinduism has others, and then if you get into Islam, you get others. Let me say this then. When you come to Jesus Christ, I don't care what your background is, you did not come at the end of a long evolutionary search for truth and added Christianity as the apex of it. When you came, this is the way God wants, a complete death to everything you have ever learned before, a death that will never be replaced. It means a grave when you come to Christ and you bury all your concepts, all your ideas about the world and how it's put together, and you come to God and you let him remold your entire thinking process. It is not, I learned this from this guru, and I picked that up from that great source, and now I've come to Jesus, who is a greater teacher than these, and he has added more concepts to what I already know. It is execution. That's what it is. And a beginning again. Because sometimes what God says goes right against what everybody else in the world thinks and says and does. And you are not smart enough sometimes to sift out deception from unreality when you first give your life to God. So I tell a kid, if he's been into Eastern thinking or occult studies, I say, when you come to Christ, you must be willing to dump everything you've previously learned and discard at refuse. Even if there's any good in it at all, it's got to be dumped and dead. Otherwise, God is not going to accept you. That's called repentance, a total change of mind about what your whole life was like before, about what you thought about God, about what you thought about yourself, about what you thought about the world. And without repentance, you will not be saved. Now, let me show you why that's important. In our day, we have had the elephant theory. Here is an elephant. Not a very cool elephant, but it's the best I can do under the circumstances. Three blind men met an elephant. One grabbed his tail, one grabbed his leg, one grabbed his ear. When they all got home, they said, wasn't that a neat creature, that elephant? And the guy who had his tail said, yeah, it was kind of thin and skinny, just like a piece of rope. The other one said, who had his leg thin and skinny, like a piece of rope? You're crazy. It was so big I could hardly put my arms around it. Third one said, you both are crazy. You never got hold of an elephant. It was thin and flat, like a leaf. It was wide, but it wasn't big. And they argued for the rest of their lives what an elephant's like. Now, this is what the East says. You get hold of the tail and you're Christians. Buddhists get hold of the leg and they're Buddhists. The Hindus get hold of the ear, but nobody sees the whole elephant. The parallel sounds like a great explanation, except this is the way it really is. Presbyterians get hold of the ear. Baptists get hold of the tail. Pentecostals get hold of the feet. <laughs> But in the great zoo, which is the universe, there are not only elephants, there are alligators. And there's a real difference between an alligator and an elephant, as you will discover if you put your hand in an alligator's mouth. And God warns us against alligators. And he says, stay away from this, it will kill you. Stay away from this, it will kill you. You can hang on to the elephant, he's all right. And you may get bits and pieces of that, but do not mistake elephants for alligators. I see the whole universe, I know the whole zoo, and I know what's safe and what isn't. And what you are fooling around with is an alligator, not an elephant seer, an alligator.
You understand? That's the way it is. The East understands this. Without revelation, nobody will know what truth is. If you're finite, how are you going to understand what infinite truth is? You'll never by searching find it out, as Job said. Canst thou by searching find out the Almighty? The answer, of course, is no. How can the finite ever know what infinite is? In order for truth to be revealed, it must always come down by revelation from the infinite to the finite. And that's precisely why I said truth comes by revelation. In the Christian scriptures, though, you can test that revelation that comes rationally, logically, historically, because God is an intelligent God, and he doesn't mind you testing him at all. You go to an Eastern guru and ask, on what, on what authority do you know that those scriptures are historical? and not mythological, and he'll say, if you don't accept it, don't study. You can take the Bible to any court of law you like and put any test you want on it. It'll come up smelling like a rose. You can't do that with any other book in the world. And I spend time in all of them. I've taken every major religious book I know, and I've subjected them to tests, and I say this, the Bible stands totally and distinctly alone. It is not like any other book, because it's God's book. Many other books hold nice things and pretty things, and some of them are borrowed from original Christian revelation. But this is different. Christ is unique. There's nobody like him. There never will be. When he comes back, you'll know the difference between him and everybody else. I remember a friend of mine. He was in the Krishna temple in San Francisco. He was one of the guys in the original culture and, you know, was there movement and the whole thing. And one day, he was in the temple. He had a Christian guy who wanted to come in and do a Bible study. Well, they had a universal altar with all of the different books and stuff. You know, there was the Koran, there was Rig Veda and the Bhagavad Gita, and there was scriptures, and they were all out there. And this Christian guy had a Bible study when the main guru was away in New York setting up another temple. And this is what this Christian kid had to be audacity to say there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, he said when he said it, he got so mad, he found something rising up inside him. He ordered him out of the temple. He screamed and yelled at him. And he who was a man of peace couldn't understand why he was so violent when the guy said that. But the young man pointed his finger at him and walked out of the temple and said, you've been possessed by a spirit of divination, but God is faithful and he will deliver you in three days and walked out. And the guy's hair stood on him. And then a couple of days later, he had a dream. Now, God can get you, man, even if you have to wait till you're asleep. He had a dream, and in his dream, he was standing in a large marketplace. North, hundreds of thousands of people in the marketplace, all buying and selling. It was a huge noise. Everybody's talking. He saw himself there in the marketplace. And he said, as they're walking around, everybody's talking and buying and selling, there was suddenly a tremendous blast of sound. It was so loud, it was so piercing, that it shut up everybody instantly. It was bah! like this, and it was just total silence right across the whole thing. And he says, then he looked around and he saw people, different people in different parts of the marketplace, begin to raise their hands and sing. And they're all singing in a language he had never heard before, but they're all singing in the same language. The hands were up like this, and he said, as they lifted their hands, they looked up and they began to sing, 
and they started rising right off the ground. And he said he looked up to where they were looking, he got the biggest shock in his life. Much larger than life, he saw the head and the shoulders of Christ with his hands out like this. And these people were lifting off the ground towards him. And he said, I was standing there on the ground watching them go. And he said, up to this time, I'd always believed that Jesus was a great teacher and a great guru and a prophet. But now I realize that he must be more. And then he woke up. The following morning, it's three days now, he got up very early in the morning for Kirtan. That's four o'clock in the morning. He went down to begin his morning devotions. And to his shock, he saw smoke billowing out of the basement of the Krishna temple. It's in San Francisco. He saw smoke billowing out of the basement. And he ran down, and their altar was on fire. It had caught fire for some reason. The whole thing was burning. And all of the books were burning. All of the holy books around. And he stood on the stairs and he looked, and in the middle of the flames there was a book lying there, untouched. Now you can't get a more visual image than this. He ran across and pulled it out, and it was the Bible. The only one not burning. And he, he was standing on the stairs, and he opened up the Bible and it fell open to John. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Do you know what Krishna means? It means dark cloud. Krishna means dark cloud. He's the blue god. You see him in darkness. And here he cracks the thing open and he said his hair stood on end. He didn't need any big sermon. He knew that Jesus Christ was God and he was set free. Became a Christian. Now you've got to understand this. God is more willing to go out and save people than they are to be saved. But you better know this, and you better know it in the very, very root of your gut, that Jesus Christ is the only God, and that the Scriptures are the only absolute authoritative revelation of truth, and that everything else is to be compared to that and nothing else. And if you don't believe that, get out of the ministry. It's as simple as that. That is the basis of all authority. And I'm not saying that just out of prejudice. I am absolutely convinced it can be demonstrated without any prejudice, without any bias at all. There is nobody like Jesus Christ and there is nothing at all like the Holy Scripture. None at all. And there's tons and tons of stuff for this. I can send you pamphlets on it if you like. But I'm, I'm going to break this if I get my eraser. Anyway, um, I just say this, just for interest's sake, why don't you take, thanks, Don, why don't you take the, the Gospel of Matthew alone, just the Gospel of Matthew, just take one chapter, and you read it through, and you ask yourself this question. Did Jesus ever claim to be one of the many ways to God? That's all. That's a simple question. Did he ever claim to be one of the many ways to God? Did he in any way, shape, or form ever intimate that there were other ways and uh, that he was just one of them? That's all I want you to do. Take the Gospel of Matthew and you can write out the scriptures that you find. I found myself writing out most of the Gospel of Matthew. 
almost every time he spoke. He didn't speak like one of the many ways to God. He said there's a way that seems right unto a man, the book of Proverbs, but the end of that way is a way of death. He said there are two roads, a straight road and a narrow road, and few there be the kind, and a broad road that leads to destruction that many go in that way. And many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you that work iniquity. And right through, he plainly states that he is the way, the only way, that no man comes to the Father but by him. And he says it again and again and again. And in C.S. Lewis's immortal words, he's either a legend, a liar, or a lunatic. Not a legend. He's there, all right. Must be dealt with. He's, if he's... He's a, if he's not a lunatic, he doesn't sure behave like a lunatic. He shows none of the symptoms of lunacy that we ever associate with paranoia or megalomania. And he said to the people around him, which one of you convinces me of sin? You can prove I'm lying, then prove it. He said he was God, and anybody can say that. And they killed him, and three days later he rose from the dead. And he told him he's going to do it before he did it. I asked a young Eastern boy, why did you leave your thought form to follow Jesus, to follow Christianity? He said, if you were going down the road, you came to a fork in the road, and you wanted to ask the way, and one man that was there was living and one was dead, which one would you ask? <laughs> I remember a beautiful thing once. I was in Las Vegas speaking in a training crusade for YWAM, and we had a, just a morning session like this, and a young man walked in the back, we're talking about knowing God and witnessing, really knowing Him before you tell anybody else how to know Him. And this boy came up, he said, I have spent 14 years in one Eastern discipline and five years in another. And he said, you talk about knowing God. How can you say you know God? I've spent all of this time and I can't say I know God. And I've done the best I know how. I said, have you ever come to the greatest teacher of all? He said, who is he? I said, you don't know who he is? I said, he's the only one. Who can introduce you directly to God? He said, who is he? I said, you got a coin? Whipped out a coin. <laughs> That's this date, 1968, 1968 years ago. He came, split history in two. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Absolutely holy, moral, righteous life. He rose from the dead and he's alive today. And you can talk to him directly. And he will introduce you to the Father. He said, how can I know him? I said, take this book. Gave him a Bible. <laughs> And I said, then take this little sheet. And it was a little sheet on uh, how to get saved. And I said, now you find a place all on your own and I'll make you a promise. This will not take you 30 months. will not take you 30 years. will not even take you 30 weeks or 30 days. It will take you less than 30 minutes. Or if you're really honest, maybe 30 seconds to meet the God that you've strived for all of these years. And he went away. Didn't see him all day. This is about 10 or 11 and about five to seven, I think, we're just getting ready to start the night meeting, and he came walking in, and his face was like a light bulb, shining, see? And he came up to me and he said the most beautiful words I've ever heard anybody say. I just talked to God, and for the first time, he talked back to me. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Go to the center, go to the source. I'm thinking of, of Keith. We got some of the last days people with us here. Keith had a list of all of the people to check out, of all of the things to check out, and very last was Jesus. 
Why Jesus? And you're Jewish. Why Jesus? Well, you've got to put him in because he's there. You've got to deal with him somehow. And after going through everything else and coming up nothing, he came to the only one he should have come to in the first place. And I tell people in universities, you go to the, the one, one person you're going to have to deal with, and that's Jesus Christ. You go to him first. You meet his conditions. And then if, only if he fails, go somewhere else. But don't you dare go wandering around others and tell me you're honestly searching for truth when you fail to deal with a single most important figure in all of human history. Don't tell me that. You're a liar. Don't tell me you've searched for many paths. I don't buy it. You've fallen in love with your search. Okay? That's locust concept one. And now, I want to give you two, and then we will take a break. Second one, by the way, second one, says, you shall not surely die. Now, I'll tell you what you've got to take care of if you're going to lead a world into worship of the demonic. You have got to take care of death because people are afraid of death. They know that dying is not going to be fun if they're not prepared for what's going to come afterwards, if indeed there is anything afterwards. Now, for about a hundred years, people have got past in the Western world by saying there's nothing afterwards. When you die, that's it. Just gas and dust and ashes, that's it. That's it. Dorothy Sayers' neat, the creed of Saint, uh, uh, what is it called? Euthanasia. Uh, can you pull over that thing for me? That little, uh, yeah, I'm kind of limited here. They got me like a monkey on a string. If you can pull that over, yeah, you don't have to lift it. Love us pretty here. I. I hope I have the creed of sin euthanasia here. Maybe I don't. Rats, I don't think I do. Yeah. I don't. How sad. I wish I could read it for you. It's such a neat creed. It was the creed she made up for all rationalists and humanists. And the end says, when I die, that's it. Finish. Well, people moved away from that. And what has done it? It's physics have done it. Physics has showed that we are more than chemicals. The universe is more than a machine. It's getting to look more and more like a great idea than a great machine. And so people are being pushed away from mechanical pictures of the universe, mechanical pictures of man, and turned more into a spiritual picture of the universe and of man. You've got to answer it somehow. And so we have now established almost beyond refutation that life persists beyond the grave. Know that. It is a fact. It can be tested. All kinds of research has been done. We know, for instance, here's a phenomenon in surgery. It's called phantom limb or ghost arm. If you have a hand that gets amputated for some accident or something, 
or through surgery, and you used to have a hand here, a strange phenomenon occurs. You can feel itchy where the hand used to be. And what they've done now, they've done experiments. Some of you know about curling photography. Curling photography is where they take a leaf or something, and then they put it under a, a very a high voltage um, source, and they lay it on a photographic plate, and you see around the edge of the leaf an energy or a force that extends out beyond the edge of the leaf, approximating the shape of the leaf, that is not apparently visible just looking at the thing. Now what is weird is when you take a piece out of this living leaf, rip a piece out, you see the force field still extending in the same shape as the original leaf. And you keep ripping bits out of this leaf, suddenly it dies and the field vanishes. Gone. We know physics, it's just physics, matter or energy can neither be created nor destroyed. That's, of course, the human law, because God created the universe and brought it into existence. Where does that energy go to? Don't know. Whatever happens, it didn't just vanish. It went somewhere. This is just as true with human beings. Energy fields extending beyond their hands. So a man with his hand cut off has a hand sticking out there beyond his hand. It's almost like he has a body inside his body and that the human body conforms its physical shape to the spiritual body which is inside that. Now, isn't that a heavy thing? Let me introduce you to a concept that may interest you. God is more solid than you are. We tend to think, don't we? Here's the spiritual world. Spiritual world is ghostly. It is tenuous. Diaphanous. Casper the friendly ghost, when he eats sandwiches, you can see him in his stomach. See? He can walk through walls because he is less solid than walls. Well, C.S. Lewis, to the moment of credible insight, said the reason why Jesus could walk through the wall was not because he was less solid than the wall, but the wall was less solid than he was. And he walked through the wall like he walked through mist in the morning. And in the scriptures, God is called the rock, not the gas. He is more solid than you are. In other words, if you think you're solid, you want to see God. As a matter of fact, one of the two words for glory in the scripture, one is Hebrew, one is Greek, doxa is a word for glory, and it tends to mean honor. The Hebrew word, kavod, means literally heavy. Heavy. That's, you could say, quite without being cool, God is extremely heavy. That's the word for glory. He says, my glory I'll not share with any man. He is heavy. He is ultimately solid. Everything else, he spoke into existence. He spoke you into being. You're real, but you're not as heavy as he is. Think of this in terms of pure physics. The world and all that is therein will pass away, but he that does the will of God shall abide forever. That's a plain physics statement. Give your 
heart and your purposes and your life to spiritual substance and you'll survive. How about John 3.16? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not crazy for a man in Jim Elliot's words to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. You know what that means? Well, the spiritual world is more solid. It has more space, it has more time, it has more matter if you want to use it there. God is not nothing. He is more than you are. And you've got to deal with death somehow. Death is here. What happens after death? Where do people go to after death? That is a bothersome question. If you're going to follow Eastern thought forms, then you're going to have to deal with death. And this is... The East's answer to death, that death is really a temporary state of affairs. And here's what the East says. Concept of all of history is one great cycle, continuing to recycle. This is even called a law in the universe called the law of karma. Karma is justice. It says that at the heart of the universe there is justice. You look at Eastern history, there is no starting any place and going to anywhere. It's just going round and round in a cycle, much like a movie film that's looped. You see it, and then many, many hours later, or years, or millions of years later, the movie comes around again and just replays. In other words, everything that is taking place has already taken place before, millions of years, and we'll go through all of the cycle and recycle and rebuild and come right back again. Now, applied to the concept of life and death, here is the fundamental idea. And that is basic to all locus philosophy. That man doesn't really die, he only goes away for a short time and comes back again. In other words, life survives the grave and all you do is you get another chance, another crack at it. And many years ago, this was supposed to be the first scientific evidence of reincarnation. The book written called The Search for Bridie Murphy. All the way till today, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Moody and others who, in scientific research, have attempted to es establish the fact that life survives the grave, that it's quite pleasant over there, and that uh, everybody, doesn't matter whether you're Christian or not, will always have the same experiences. This is called selective statistics. You pick all the people with nice experiences and you write books on them. You avoid those who have unusual experiences, like going to hell and coming back and going to heaven and coming back. You cut out those and you concentrate on those who had the same experiences. Now, 
Spiritual Canovitz Project has done uh, an article on thanatology, death and dying, which you need to read. But let me just give you very quickly this thing, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll take a break. Uh, the concept is that if you do something wrong in this life, you will be punished in the next life by being subjected to the same thing you subjected somebody else to. If, uh, if I come up and slap you on the face and I get away with it, in the next life, somebody will slap me in the face. That's pure justice. If I, as a son, murder my mother, in the next life, I will come back and become a mother to be murdered by my son. But you will never escape justice. And that's the great strength of the karmic system, that there is always going to be justice. But the tragedy of it is this. You see a child starving to death in the streets, and you look at it and you say this, this is what it deserves. In the last life, it was a person who starved people to death. Now it has come back, and he himself is being starved to death. So ultimately, the heart of this system is strict and inexorable justice, but no mercy. In the heart of the gospel, there is not justice, but mercy. There's much more than justice. The heart of the universe, there is mercy. That's what the gospel said. The East says the heart of the universe is strict justice. The concept being that if you're really rotten, you may even miss being a human being. And through a number of cycles, finally wind up as an animal, unless you learn your lesson. You become animal-like. The next life, you'll be recycled. You might come down to an animal. If you're a good animal, good dog, you might shift up. They have whole cycles, like an elevator, up and down. And why am I giving you all of this? Because hell in the East is to be born again. So here you go out to witness. You say to an Eastern man, you need to be born again. He goes, oh. You're just saying, why don't you go to hell? That's what you said. Because he wants to get off this rotten wheel. That's what salvation is, to get off this horrible birth and rebirth and birth and rebirth. That is hell. To have to keep on coming back to this rotten world and have to live it again because you didn't make it in the last cycle. You'll never know when you die whether you made it or not. That's a tragedy. You will never know whether you're saved or not. The moment you die, you will not know. In this, you just keep cycling again and again. And only those who get off the wheel never come back. So if you're a guru and you're a teacher and you're a philosopher, it means... Hopefully this is your last time around, because you blew it the last time. There are other worlds with souls on it, which are imported. That's why they say another way to travel space. So Earth is being repopulated by other souls from other galaxies. This ties right into the UFO thing. Anyway... What is, what is to be saved here? What is to be saved? If hell is to be born again, what is to be saved? To be saved 
is to lose your individual identity which creates us being reborn. So to be saved is to be lost as an individual. Now you go and you say, you need to be born again so you won't be lost. You give an exact opposite. And here's the question I want to ask you. And it's a very simple one. Is reincarnation taught in the Bible? Question. Now, Jeannie Dixon says it is. International Society for Krishna Consciousness says it is. Edgar Cayce says it is. Does the Bible say it is? That's the question. Like to look at it? And this will quit. Turn, please, the Gospel of John. Keep your finger in John chapter 1 and write this scripture down. Matthew 11, verse 14. Matthew 11, verse 14. This scripture and one similar to it are the ones on which all of reincarnation concepts are based. Supposedly teaching that John the Baptist was an example of this doctrine because he was the reincarnation of Elijah. That Jesus taught that he was the reincarnation of Elijah and that not only is reincarnation taught in the Bible, Jesus taught reincarnation. And this is the scripture. That and its parallel passage is the ones that prove it. The scripture, when you look up Matthew eleven fourteen, says, Jesus said, if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come, speaking of John the Baptist. Now, Quite apart from what that may mean, let's look and ask John the Baptist who he was. Of course, not personally. He knows better than that. But let's go and ask him, because in their day they had people who came and said, we think you're the reincarnation of Elijah. Are you? John 1 gives a record. They came out and thought he might be Christ. They said, who are you? He said, I'm not Jesus. He had more brains than some gurus do. And he said, I'm not the Christ. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? This is in verse 21. And he said, of course I am. I'm his reincarnation. He said, I am not. They said, well, look, a whole bunch of people were saying you were. I mean, Gene Dixon said you were and Edgar Casey, and they couldn't be wrong, could they? Aren't you that prophet? And he said, no. Now, he should have known who he was. He said, no, I am not. He said it twice, just in case you misunderstood him. Well, how come he wasn't then? Didn't Jesus say that he was? Maybe Jesus was right and John was wrong. No, you see, there's a bit of a problem here, and that's this. In order to be reincarnated, first of all, you have to be excarnated. In other words, in order to re-enter a body, first of all, you have to leave one. And the only problem with John the Baptist being Elijah is that Elijah is one of the two men in the Bible who never died. He has the same body today as he did thousands of years ago. He is one of the two miraculous translations that are recorded in Holy Scripture. This is an embarrassing fact for reincarnation. doesn't matter if you don't read the rest of the Bible, of course. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. Records 
Elijah's translation. You don't have to look it up. I'm just, uh, you can read it. But Eli, Elijah had Elisha with him. And uh, he said, if you see me taken up, it'll be so. And then God came, chariot of fire, separated the two. And Elijah was carried to heaven by a whirlwind in person without dying. He has not died yet. He and Enoch are the two oldest beings, oldest humans. They're alive. They're in heaven. Same bodies. They live. Put the capstone on this. Maybe you'd like to look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17, John the Baptist has just been decapitated. Every one of the disciples who was standing with Jesus knew John the Baptist. Knew what he looked like. They knew who he was. They'd listened to him preach. As a matter of fact, John, as we mentioned in the opening message that we had Wednesday night, was probably one of John the, of John the Baptist's disciples. And Jesus took them up into a mountain, and his face did shine as the sun. And behold, verse 3 of Matthew 17, there appeared unto them Moses and a headless John the Baptist talking with him. Hardly needs to be stressed that these men knew who John the Baptist was and they realized that whoever was talking to Jesus was not John the Baptist, but Elijah. Not a reincarnated Elijah. The same Elijah who did the miracles before. Then what in the world did Jesus mean when he said, if you will receive it, this is John, who is, this is Elijah or Elias, which is to come. Because you see, one of the big tests of the Messiah was this. This is what all the Jewish scholars looked for because they knew from the scriptures that this is what was to come. That before the Messiah came to set up his kingdom, Elijah would return and he would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And what they did is in studying the Old Testament, they looked like this. Now, if you looked at two mountains with a valley of, say, two or three hundred miles between them, if you looked on the side, it would look like this, in other words. And you look from this distance, say, 1,000 or 2,000 miles away, without a telescope, you'd probably see those two mountains appear as one mountain. They're in line. You'd see them as one. All right? The big mountain represents Jesus' second coming. The small mountain, his first coming. But from the long-distance perspective that many of the Jewish scholars had, they didn't realize there was a gap between the first and the second coming. They assumed the Messiah, when he came, would come only for his own. He would come with great power and glory. He would overthrow all wickedness, and he would establish his kingdom to rule forever across the world. They knew that. They also knew that before he came like this, Elijah would come. And so one of their tests of, is it time for the Messiah, was, is there Elijah around? Now, Jesus, knowing full well there's no way he can explain a gap of the last 2,000 years called the church, 
when there even wasn't any such thing at that point, knowing full well that he'd never be able to explain, look, I'm coming, I'm going to die, I'm going to go, I'm coming back again, a couple of thousand years from now probably, or maybe three or four hundred, depends, you know. All right, thanks for tuning in. That's the uh, end of episode number 30, podcast number 30, The Day of the Locust, part one. Part two should be coming next week. And don't forget to tell your friends uh, that they can listen to these podcasts on moh.org, on the Podbean app for uh, for your Android or iOS phones or operating systems. Uh, you can find them on iTunes and at podbean.com. So uh, thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>